everyone. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome, Gabby. <laughs> welcome. Today on the show, we are going to talk about the seven psychological stages of serial killing and killers, which is a book that was originally, well, it's not actually called this, but Joel Norris wrote a book called Serial Killers. And in that book, he talks about the seven phases of serial killing or the seven psychological phases of serial killers. So we're going to use both of those things and wind them out, Kathy. Okay. And I thought, if you're amenable, that I would use sort of a little example from Jeffrey Dahmer's like first kill, something like that, to explicate the different phases as we go. Sure. Does that sound like a light day for you? I, I, yes. <laughs> a light day for us. Yeah. I mean, here we are. So I wanted to talk a little bit about Joel Norris to begin with. He was an author. He wrote the following books. He wrote Serial Killers. He wrote The Killers Next Door. He wrote Jeffrey Dahmer, A Bizarre Journey into the Mind of America's Most Tormented Serial Killer. I feel like I read The Serial Killers next door. Or maybe we've talked about it's it. It's pretty classic. Okay. I don't know. Okay. Maybe. Walking Time Bombs, Henry Lee Lucas, mm. Pontiac, Siege of Detroit. <laughs> so he wrote a bunch of books. He he interviewed you know Charles Manson, Jeffrey Dahmer, Henry Lee Lucas. He was a psychologist that had access and interviewed a lot of these folks. He was born in 1942. He lived in the San Francisco Bay Area. He's got his PhD in psychology from the University of Georgia. He was on he was a member of the International Committee of Neuroscience Scientists to Study Episodic Aggression Coalition of Victims Equal Rights. He was all the things. Mm. So he was working in that forensic area and he also happened to die at the age of 50 from AIDS. Okay. So I wanted to talk a little bit about an article actually I read where they were talking about his life and who he was and it was posthumously. When he was in Milwaukee during the Jeffrey Dahmer trial he got interviews that made people connect with the case very uncomfortable because he asked a lot of sort of the wrong questions to them, meaning he kind of wanted to knew, know who Jeffrey Dahmer was and why he killed all those people, you know, and mm. he would just ask those questions. And and people would end up telling him these things. And the people that worked with him would talk about how he had this affinity for anyone who was a victim of child abuse. And he could, for lack of a better word, like sniff that out. Like he could feel that someone was had been traumatized but i don't think that's a much of, as much of a stretch obviously in our work these folks would talk to him and feel comfortable and they would end up talking about their guilt and their shame and he would kind of get into their victim mentality kind of so that they would want to tell those stories and as we know with many narcissists psychopaths sociopaths they want to tell you those stories but they won't necessarily tell everyone Right. His closest folks talk about when he he actually had contracted. He believed that he had contracted AIDS when he had gone down to Florida to interview Otis Toole mm. and that that those experiences had him in a very deep hole of depression. And he was really unhappy and really wallowing and really unsettled and 
in Florida, which he talked about, you know, as the most evil place on earth, <laughs> whatever, that was his perspective at the time. And I guess, um, people who knew Otis Toole and Henry Lee Lucas were hanging out a lot in the bathhouses there. And so he would go into those bathhouses to do interviews, to buddy up to these people, to try to get information for research for his book and ended up being involved in things where he felt like he had gotten sick, which I just thought was an interesting behind the scenes piece because we don't often talk about the true crime writers Mm -mm. and what they go through traumatically, emotionally, psychologically to get these stories and to get this information. Now, of course, does everyone have to go into the bathhouses to interview Otis Toole's friends? No, of course not. He chose to do that. But by the time he got back to Los Angeles after that, He became sick. He moved home with his mom, actually, and then uh, shortly after that died. But he has this big contribution to the serial killer research, which are these books and these psychological phases of serial killers. So I wanted to make sure to just talk a little bit about the author before we got into... Yeah, I appreciate that. It's important. We forget how hard they work. Yeah. I'll be talking about the Casanova killer on one of our newer episodes and one of the journalists that he got involved in or involved with. And like, we just forget that these people literally put their lives on the line. They're interacting with folks that could definitely kill them a lot. Many times it's, it's when the person's already in prison, but these friends and stuff that he was going after, like that doesn't mean his friends were nice people. (laughs) Right. Like, right. Yeah. So the seven psychological phases of serial killing, they each have a name. So let's just dive in with number one. The first phase is called the aura phase. It's spelled A-U-R-A. And this is the phase where a serial killer hasn't killed yet, but he has begun to withdraw from family and friends. He's begun to isolate more and more. He's like a person, you know, who's addicted to television. You know, all he wants to do is continue. All someone wants to do is continue watching television. But the television that this guy is, and we're going to say guy, because that's predominantly the percentage wise. So I'm just going to use that, uh, those pronouns for he, him, male, guy, as representative of what I'm talking about. But the television that he's watching is this fantasy in his head. So he's begun to fantasize about killing. He's maybe committed small acts, but not killed yet. You know, people he comes in contact with might not even notice that there's any difference in how they're acting. But in this aura phase, he he won't be, he's not trying to make contact with other people that he feels obliged to talk to or interact with because he's slowly going or, or quickly going into this fantasy fate, this fantasy, this living in that life 24 seven in his mind. And it's here that he might start abusing alcohol or drugs. You know, we saw that with Jeffrey Dahmer, which usually leads to the fantasies being more intensified so they often talk about drugs and alcohol intensifying this feeling 
And after a while, the fantasies have to be acted upon. And then, you know, the compulsion starts where it's like, I, I'm, I'm living in this mind set all the time. I need to enact these things in quote unquote real life. And this phase, this phase can last anywhere from a few minutes, you know, to a few months. And it's the time where they're kind of getting up the nerve to do what you know, they're building themselves up to do what they want to do ultimately. Right. I would say, you know, we've had serial, we've seen serial killers, talked about serial killers that kill really regularly every couple of months. And then we've also, and so they have these high numbers of people that they killed. And then we've talked about serial killers that are, that are not like that. It could be four or five years in between each yeah. kill and so they end up killing for decades because there there never is like an accumulation of of data to get them because it's so few and far between right yeah i think it depends on their motivation mm -hmm. it depends on how safe they feel sure. it depends on what else is going on in their life like you know yeah we've talked about like if they're married and have yeah. kids and all that they have to but what but what Joel was saying is that and this has been bared out i think and that's why we still talk about it is that no matter what the frequency there there has this aura phase where they say where they sink into that so imagine somebody who doesn't kill for four or five years they start to have this phase where it's all they can think about mm -hmm. and so it starts this cycle it starts these phases is what the gotcha is what we're talking about now with jeffrey dahmer so dahmer will say it has said in interviews quote unquote, I don't even know why it started. If I knew the true real reasons why all this started before I did it, I wouldn't have probably done any of it. Now that's Dahmer's borderline personality and and his victimization of self and talking about how it's like, oh, I, if I could go back and, you know, he did a lot of that. But this really, you know, the simplest answer of to like why Dahmer may have started is just this phase began to come, right? The fantasies of, of his internal life began to kick up a notch and reality would always spoil his fantasy world, right? Like mm -hmm. they, we oh, talked sure. a lot about that with Jeffrey. He would have this very rich, very odd, very strange, very not real fantasy world. And then he would try to enact it and it would always be a disillusionment of his imagination. And then he would kill them because they weren't, it wasn't right. You this know? is not satisfying. <laughs> this is not satisfying. Yeah. His crime scenes were his attempt to copy his imagination. And like, you know, the Polaroids and the zombie-like experiments, obviously, that he did with his drills and his bones and his heads and freezers and the shrines of bones built, you know, and the kitchen full of remains and everything was literally him trying to put these fantasies into his real-life surroundings. But it would all start with him fantasizing and thinking about it in his aura phase. So the second psychological phase that dr norris put forward was the trolling phase now we've got the killers decided okay i'm ready i'm ready to take this from fantasy to reality and he's looking for a victim thus trolling he's usually going to be looking in a place where he's been before that's why a lot of times 
you know, on television, you'll see the, the crack officers going, oh, who lives near here? Even in Silence of the Lambs, it's like the first victim, you know, was like right next door. Yeah. And, and that's take, that cliche is taken from reality because oftentimes they'll just go to what they know and start to troll familiar surroundings. They also think that they can be more successful in that way because these are people that might know them or might recognize them. It would be easier to trap them. And it's also a time when they're going to troll around trying to find a place to kill someone, a place to take the victim and kill them and and then what they're going to do. And they have all this time to consider you know, where, who it's going to be, where they're going to enact their fantasy, where they're going to dump the body, all of this. And so this phase takes as long as it takes, you know, again, just like the aura phase, it takes a day or months. It sort of depends, I think, on the personality and whether this is the really great part of it. Yeah. You know, like the, the trolling is maybe something they figured out is the most satisfying. I think for a lot, I mean, I think for Dennis Rader, the trolling was like a really big piece for him and he wouldn't even carry out you know if there's anything about the lead up to his crime if anything were to go wrong he wouldn't he was more into that preparation and and then his OCD around the preparation some of that may have had to do with the fact that he almost got caught once Mm. but he talked about how he loved finding the right family Right. You know, and stalking them. And that was where the majority of his arousal was. And it was the most time that he spent. Yeah. Right. The kill and, and the rest of it wasn't nearly was as long. Quick. As, yeah, yeah. It wasn't nearly as long as the time he spent trolling and trying to figure out what he was going to do. And they're, they're sort of looking for the perfect victim, the perfect place, the perfect scenario. And... I think that takes a while to create in one's own head. And so that takes some time maybe, but it depends on how how many times you've done it probably. And by this phase, they also have an idea of how they'll approach the victims. So with Jeffrey Dahmer, if we take into account, you know, his first kill, we could talk about this phase as, you know, he was deeply fantasizing in his aura phase about the bare chest of a male. And, you know, when he lived with his grandmother, he had a mannequin in his room that he slept with and he would fantasize that that was a real man's chest and he would sleep with it. And by the time he was thinking about this daily and all the time. It was the summer of 1978 and he was 18 and Dahmer drove past this handsome hitchhiker. It's been, you know, dramatized in a lot of movies where he saw this hitchhiker on the side of the road who was bare chested. And he thought that actually that this scenario, this situation was designed by fate and that this hitchhiker was sent to him personally. This is part of the fantasy. You know, the perfect victim shows up or you find them. And he was still living with his grandmother, but I think she was out of town and it just sort of, it was too perfect to resist. He wasn't exactly thinking he was going to do it then, but he had obviously become quote unquote ready. And Steve Hicks Four days before his 29th birthday, actually, Steve Hicks was uh, Jeffrey Dahmer's first victim. Mm. The third phase is the wooing phase. With a disorganized killer, that we wouldn't really do this. <laughs> With a disorganized, you said? Yeah. Yeah. We wouldn't, wouldn't 
be here at this phase uh, as the organized killer is more confident and has better social skills and would be and would enact this phase because they would be wooing that would be part of it like like you woo of it. yeah of course <laughs> Shannon woos all the time. I woo the best of them. And this hitchhiker that Jeffrey Dahmer had, you know, spent some time with Jeffrey a little bit drinking and all this. And so Jeffrey really liked the wooing part because he had more sociopathic tendencies, more charm. He was good looking and all of that. And they will try to socialize with their victims. And he did that. We know that he went to lots of bars he was socializing with people that would introduce him to other people. He was, he was, they always thought he was odd, but he was trying to socialize mm-hmm. with the victim to gain their trust because he liked that. He liked that seduction. And he was also, I think Kathy would agree with me because we talked about this in our Dahmer episodes is that. He was also enacting a fantasy of a relationship. He really Uh, felt like he was going to be in a relationship with these people. I think that was a big part of it because he was in the closet. Yeah. And so he, these interactions that he had were, had a dual purpose because it's also where he was able to live out his authenticity, Mm -hmm. but then bring in that deviance into it. Right. So it was like, he was getting it satisfied from two different angles if you will. Yeah, I will. That could be taken a lot of different ways, the yeah. way that I said that. I know. <laughs> we He's getting satisfied be, from every angle. We can always be misconstrued. The front, the much. back, the top, <laughs> okay. the bottom. Yeah. I imagine those were all part of Jeffrey's fantasies. So, But the wooing phase is sort of the, is the bridge between the trolling phase and, the, and getting to the capture phase, which is number four. Because... Organized killers will want this number three wooing phase because they'll want to troll and then they'll want to engage with the victim and draw Mm -hmm. it out even further. So let's say they've been trolling for two years or something and they finally find this person. Now they're going to want to draw out the wooing part, right? They may become friends with the person. It might be somebody they buy cigarettes from every week or something, you know, and and they're going to draw it out to, to have more of this fantasy that they're actually in control, powerful over this person. And with Jeffrey, that there was actually a relationship of some kind going on. But I I think it's fair too to say, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, but I would imagine that there's also this obsession with knowing that they know something this other person doesn't. Yeah, the secret. Yeah. I think secrets are enticing to every human. Yeah. It wouldn't surprise me if that's a piece of it too is is, and i think that the secret for these guys feeds into feeling in control and powerful over someone else for sure which i won't say that everyone with a secret has to feel that way yeah but for these guys guys, it's it's part of the arousal i would imagine i'm guessing that as well and so then we get to number four so we've wooed the person and now we're getting to the number four psychological stage as discussed by Dr. Joel Norris, capture phase. And this is where he betrays any trust that he's gained from this victim. So they they capture them and he somehow gets the victim in the car or knocks them out or, you know, with Jeffrey, he would drug them. He would get them, he would woo them up to come up into his apartment and then he would drug them. 
the, so the secluded area that they've picked out. So with Jeffrey Dahmer, it was his apartment, and he would pick up uh, these guys at bars, and then he would woo them back into his apartment, and then he would pretend like they were on a date, some do some kind of awkward date scenario, and then he would drug them. I mean, but we've seen lots of scenarios in Silence of the Lambs. It was, you know, I've got a broken arm. I need help getting something into the car or I'm looking for a lost puppy or, you know, those are common ones. Right. And they love, they look for victims that have that level of vulnerability when they know they can just like steamroll over those boundaries and just, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And they get pleasure out of this, you know, they get this complete control. All of a sudden they're switching, right? That's like, oh, I have complete control over this person. I can capture them. I, they can't get away. And, you know, obviously some people have actually escaped or talked the killer out into letting them go. And that happens as well. Um, But it seems as though that happens because there's some kind of interruption in the fantasy that that person is having. For sure. You know, maybe mentioning that they have children or, you know, if if somebody has, if a serial killer has a connection to their grandma, maybe mentioning that their grandma's waiting for them. You just kind of don't know what you may have stepped into to allow that person to let you go. Mm-hmm. I know with Dahmer, there were certain men that he just really liked. You know, he just Oh, yeah, he had really a type. Liked. He had a type. He did. It, and there were some that he really liked and that would fight him and get away. And right. that's ultimately, of course, how he was... Cap- identified and captured, but I mean, uh, arrested, but because it was so based in his, um, sort of personality disorder and loneliness and, and enacting these fantasies of having a relationship and his delusional, his distortions were so people could very easily manipulate him back is, was always my impression. For Dahmer with, with Steve Hicks in this phase, you know, he convinced, uh, Hicks to get into the car and ride with him to his grandmother's house and they drank and smoked marijuana all evening long like for hours mm-hmm. and Dahmer said he wanted to ask Hicks to undress earlier in the evening but he had resisted and they um, I guess Hicks began talking about his girlfriend and this became the point where Dahmer got really upset because it was fucking his fan, fucking up with his fantasy, sure. right? Yeah. That the guy was gay and wanted him, and the, we, they could be in a relationship, yeah. and that he could finally like hold a real chest because he's eighteen. So he needed to, you know, he got angry, and then the control kicked in, and like don't you know, and don't ruin my ultimate fantasy. You know, I can imagine him thinking that, and he wanted it the way he had fantasized it, and so um, they really are. Sorry to interrupt no, you, but they ahead. really are so obsessed with that perfect murder that fantasy and Mm -hmm. you know we've talked about in other shows that rehearsal piece of like you know if you're working with one of them as a clinician and they talk about these things like it could be a rehearsal like they're really obsessed with that rehearsal yeah and that's that's why i think you know when we talk about we don't want people rehearsing verbally right we're trying to stop that. We're trying to interrupt that when, if, if and when you're working with a sexual predator or any kind of predator, any kind of criminal. 
and that's what we're talking about. That first phase is the aura phase, yeah. which is when they're fantasizing. And so um, people who are working with these guys regularly are trying to stop that starting. Yeah. They're start trying to stop these seven stages from starting like another cycle of right. Cause I, I would imagine the more elaborate, it is then the more deliberate it becomes and then you know they've played it out so many times in detail and then they become obsessed with that story yeah yeah and that's what dr norris was saying it was that first stage so i can see how yeah like none of us want to encourage entertain witness that phase you know you just try to interrupt it especially you know like when you were working with predators um who were in treatment to, to get better like you're not wanting them to go there no and i think that if you aren't trained to identify when you might be sitting with someone who's a predator because there's a lot of different you know not to dig i'm not going to digress too much here but to be clear some people work with folks who have sexual addictions compulsions whatever orientation however you speak of that and I've spoken with folks who work in the clinical realm and they're like well it's really important for them to process that and I'm like but if you don't know if you're sitting you know that's great that you're giving them all the benefit of the doubt that they haven't you know committed any offenses but if by some accident you are actually sitting with someone who's more predatory uh you might be doing something that could enhance the likelihood of an offense. Yeah, you're enabling them. Yeah. And also putting yourself in danger. Right. The fifth phase is the murder phase. So you have fantasized, you have trolled and picked your victim, you have wooed them into a situation where you have control over them, you have captured them, and now we are at number five, which is the murder phase. Now, a disorganized killer is likely to kill the victim very quickly, and they're also more, uh, you can argue with this if, if you want, Kathy, but my understanding is that a disorganized... Oh, I'm going to argue. Okay, cool. I'm going to fucking argue right now. <laughs> a disorganized killer is actually more likely to rape and mutilate after death as well. Oh, yeah, they're a yeah. mess. Yeah. So it's got a very different look, this murder phase. They're more likely to leave DNA. Yeah. I mean, they're... They're on a path to get caught. Disorganized for a quickly. reason. Right. They're they don't impulsive. have any control over that. No. Richard Ramirez being an example of that. So with an organized killer, the time will be taken, the fantasy will be acted out. Most of the torture or mutilation or any of the horrible acts they're going to impart are going to happen when the victim's alive. It's usually part of their fantasy. So obviously these aren't hard and fast rules, but that's just what there is that we know of. The most organized serial killer will keep the person alive as long as possible mm -hmm. to get the most enjoyment That's, because yeah. once the murder phase is over, mm -hmm. there's a few pieces here that will bring them enjoyment, but that's that's like, mm, that's the denouement. That's when it starts to become not as enjoyable. And, and serial killers, will, a lot of them will just literally just move on and start fantasizing about the next one because those are the phases that bring their sickness to its its most enjoyable point right. i guess they'll make it last as long as possible and because they're not really there for the kill they're really there to live out this fantasy and i guess that's one of the themes today that i'm trying to just sort of show is that it's really all about this fantasy and Dahmer, with steve hicks talking about this this first kill of his 
went to the cellar of his grandma's house when he had gotten angry about Hicks talking about his girlfriend and they had been drinking and smoking pot and he ultimately was excused himself, went to the cellar and picked up an eight inch long barbell. And then he came back upstairs and struck Hicks across the head. And when Hicks tried to fight him off, Dahmer held him down on the floor with the barbell and strangled him to death. He stripped his body so that he could admire his fantasy in real life. It's, Literally, the reason why he kidnapped him and mm-hmm. and killed him was to enact this fantasy. And Dahmer later, I guess, hid the body in a crawl space of his grandmother's home. And the next day, he went out and bought a knife, cut up the arms, legs, head, and sliced him open the chest to see what was inside. Because as we know about Dahmer, as he'd been killing animals and doing taxidermy and and looking at what was inside of animals for a chunk of time already. And mm. so this was his first time to be able to chop everything up and cut Steve Hicks open in order to Jesus. see what was inside. Wow. Right? So the sixth phase is the totem phase. So the fantasy is over and the excitement is gone and there's a depression usually that comes in uh, because it's over and it didn't really last that long and they always want it to last longer. And this is why some of the serial killers will take what we call trophies away, thus the name totem, so that they have something that will help them reenact the fantasy in their mind over and over again. And this helps them remember the power that they had over the victim, remember the the trolling, the remember the fantasy, remember the good parts of whatever they feel, the you know, the with their sick fantasy, whatever was happening, and this is the way they can relive it, is sometimes by taking something with them that will remind them of the whole scenario. Mm. It also reminds them that they actually did it. You know, because I do think yeah. the fantasy life is so rich that there just might be a forgetting. I think you that's know? true. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Because if you live in the fantasy life uh, all the time, you know, once a kill is over, if you don't have something to remind, like uh, you see the, in these interviews, you see sometimes the serial killers will tell you exactly what happened, but it's usually because they have some way to remember. They'll show them a picture, something tactile. They'll have their box of whatever. And then other ones will be like, yeah, I don't, I don't remember that. Or I don't, you know, they just literally have moved on to yeah. whatever their next thing is. So. Yeah. And then you wonder too, you know, depending on whatever their mental health is like, you sure. know, the dissociation involved or like the delusions involved, how psychopathic they are and whether they have any guilt or, you, you know, sometimes they do. I'll talk about that in one of the episodes. Mm-hmm. So it's, yeah, it really, we throw them in one category and like you're going through these seven and these mm-hmm. seven, I think are staples, but just like with any person there are going to be variations of this within absolutely there's so many things to consider yeah some of them will take jewelry you know newspaper clippings right when the when the story comes out they'll do things like that now i mean with Dahmer, he he kept hicks's head well you know he kept penises Mm -hmm. you know heads yes he kept hicks's head and he uh, put it in his bedroom so that he could admire it. Well, in his grandmother's house. And and here's a guy too that would literally 
ingest another human physically and metaphorically. Yeah. He was a very, very sad guy. Not that I, you know, feel sorry no, it's for his, him necessarily. No, no, no. It's not about that, right? It's not about sympathy. It's no, more it, about understanding. He like, was a really sad guy. He was a very sad guy, very depressed guy, very anxious guy. Yeah. Very sick guy. Uh, he His quote was, there is a process. It doesn't happen overnight. When you depersonalize another person and view them as just an object, which he did, this is a quote from him, an object for pleasure and not a living, breathing human being, it seems to make it easier to do the things you shouldn't do. Hmm. So he's talking in what you in what one would feel like is a very intelligent way because Dahmer had a way of convincing everyone that he knew everything and knew about himself and, you know, <laughs> very interesting and very articulate in general. This is how he was able to woo people into his possession is because he was an interesting guy, a good-looking guy. He, he gave a superficial understanding of the world and himself, yeah. and he does that a lot in interviews. So that's what he said. He would objectify them, and then it made them easier. So the totem, keeping the head, he's sort of saying, I didn't see it as a person, and that's how I was able to, to do that. Once it was oh. dead... And I could look at its insides. It was an it, not a person. Right. It was no longer that person that I wanted to. The fantasy was over. It wasn't in the relationship anymore. And then he would try to keep some of them alive I through know. like zombification. I know. To keep the fantasy going. Mm -hmm. Because once you once the, they're dead, then we're into this totem phase where we're taking heads and making breakfast. So, so lonely. So... No, he totally was Lonely. making the guy breakfast. Oh, he was. <laughs> he totally was. So sad. All right, the last phase, because this is really <laughs> the last phase that we very naturally. There's more! <laughs> we very naturally came into the last phase, which is number seven, and it's the depression phase. When we're talking about Dahmer, it was very clear because this is the last phase before it starts again. There's a depression phase in the cycle, and then after the depression phase, they they either are stuck in that depression phase for a while or they're going to move back into the aura phase because it feels a whole lot better to fantasize about the next thing. So there's an emotional letdown. There was a crescendo, a high that they got. There's emotional letdown. And this can last for days or weeks, sometimes months. We've seen years, just availability and life events that could put it off. And this is the time that they might try to commit suicide uh, or confess to the police mm -hmm. before they kill again. Uh, you know, the victim is dead. They don't represent what they thought they did because it's a, it's a self-fulfilling, disappointing prophecy. It's never going to be this fantasy. So they're always in a cycle of fantasy and depression because it's never going to be the thing that they fantasize because right. it's not, it's like not possible. It never gets finished. It's, there's never a satisfactory ending. I mean, we see a lot of times in movies where we see them getting all of this satisfaction and there might be satisfaction in these phases, but they're never going to get a satisfying ending because that fantasy doesn't exist. And it's like this incomplete <sighs> story. It's, they're insatiable. Yes. And that's why is because the unrealistic fantasy creates a situation where you think that's going to come true 
and then it doesn't, it's always ruined. And you can externalize that and blame the victim, which a lot of them do. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, you have a boyfriend, you have this, you're not, you're blonde and not brunette, whatever it or is. Or if they're, if they have a victim type, then, you know, no matter how many, it, it, it might resolve some of that insatiability for a moment. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, but I'm still angry. Yeah, there's never an ending. In every subsequent murder, they try to make sense of how to make the fantasy come true. And so that's why we see these like all these alterations in the murder scene or how they do it or who they pick or whatever. It's because it's like, okay, well, if I had just done this, yeah. because of course the anxious mind goes, well, if I just change this or I change that, then I can get to the thing where this fantasy is actually real and I can make it happen and I can get my satisfaction thinking that there is satisfaction when there isn't ever going to be satisfaction. And that's like the loop that they're stuck in. And so they're in this depression because they're going to always be in this depression phase. That's right. Yeah. This is why we always see serial killers in patterns because they're enacting these patterns. Serial killing is an addiction. And this is the cycle. These are the phases that the serial killer goes through that's enacting the addiction because you could take any of these phases and you could apply it to anything in anyone's life that has something to do with addiction. could be love addiction, could be drugs and alcohol, could be computers, any of that. You can apply them to these phases. Mm -hmm. And serial killing is no different in my opinion. Obviously it has a lot of other layers psychologically, but it is an addiction. Yeah. Addiction's addiction or compulsion's compulsion. Right. Yeah. So the murder of Steve Hicks for Jeffrey Dahmer was he always talked about it as the most difficult murder. It was his first. And in fact, later psychologists, I guess, would often say he would talk about anything else when they would interview him. He never wanted to talk about Steve Hicks. He never wanted to open up about it. He, he would always talk about all of these other things, but he you know, would never talk about that one or not never, but he really resisted talking about it for a long time and you know obviously he went on to enact this cycle and this addiction many 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 times and he claimed the lives of many innocent victims and I guess his final I could end with this is that Jeffrey Dahmer's final intended victim was Tracy Edwards oh, that and was really sad it was really sad and Dahmer had bought brought him back to his apartment and handcuffed him however Edwards managed to escape and when police officials found him running down the street with handcuffs on they they once walked him back into the apartment to get the key to the handcuffs and inside the apartment the first officer was looking for the key and noticed there was a knife under the bed and also polaroid pictures of bodies in various stages of dismemberment because jeffrey never you know he wasn't trying to hide anything because his victims were the only people coming into his apartment mm-hmm. and he had gotten to a place where he'd killed so often that I'm sure he didn't feel like he would ever be caught. I don't think he was even thinking about it. He was just on to the next fantasy. And so overnight Dahmer confessed to some of the most gruesome murders the world has ever known mm-hmm. at that point. And then mm-hmm. that's how he was caught. So mm-hmm. those are the seven psychological stages of serial killing, Kathy. Yikes. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening. We hope that you enjoy this uh, kind of evergreen true crime content where we talk about some bigger ideas and not just a particular case. But I did try to weave in the Dahmer. You most certainly did. So that we had something to relate well, to with the faces. And a lot of people know 
him. Yes. You know, from all the movies and everything. Peter series and all, all the that. Things. So it, I think it's easy to follow along. I was hopeful that it would help. Yes. Thank you, Kathy, for all of your contribution. And I appreciate you. And I appreciate the listeners. And this has been an episode of Terror Talk. And my name is Shannon. And I'm Kathy. Sleep safe, everyone. <laughs>